Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Welcome to part two of the first episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Saigon podcast. I'm still here with J.K. Hobson. In part one, we talked about his history with the fairly well-known band called uh, Crisis and his um, experience of the music industry. And we talked a little bit about uh, America and the changing face, especially gentrification. In this part, we're going to move on to Vietnam. So J.K. is from New York originally. And then he came to Vietnam on a study abroad program in 2016 on a Fulbright scholarship. He then went on to co-found Saigon Funny People, where he regularly hosts open mic nights and performs stand-up comedy. He now writes for City Pass Guide, Saigonia, and Tao City, and has appeared on Vietnamese TV, and somehow manages to find some time to teach English. So the first question is, what do you not do, and where do you find the time? <laughs> Uh, what do I not do? Uh, I don't say no to opportunities, which I really need to sometimes. <laughs> Including people asking you to do podcasts. No, this is cool. This is easy. You know, this is like required very little prep. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do stay, I stay busy. It's funny because I, I got, kind of got used to it from university. So, so part of the fast forward 
after crisis broke up, I went back to school and then I was really grinding hard and, you know, like really knocked it out of the park. And so I got into like writing a lot because I had to write a lot for, for my major and then so... And your major was? Was global studies. It's like the sl- study of globalization. And then, uh, you know, when I, when I... The first job I got in Saigon, um, I got... I was hanging out at a party, and I met uh, Brian Letwin, uh, who's the founder of Saigoneer. And uh, we were just hanging out at a party. It turned out he, he was from New York, too. And we were hanging out at my buddy Alvin's house, and we just met, and we're just shooting the shit or whatever. I don't think I even knew who he was. And he was like, hey, I like the cut of your jib. <laughs> I always say that, I always say that he says that when I tell, tell, tell this story. He didn't exactly say that. But he was like, hey. It's a hey. British thing. <laughs> so is it really? Yeah, I, I thought it was so, like, yeah. oh. Does he say that there? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> I like the cut of your jib, son. Um, Very he, waspy at the least if it's if it's American, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, which At any rate, he didn't really say that. But he was like, hey, do you write? And I was like, yeah, sure, I write. And then uh, he, I was all of a sudden I was freelancing for Saigoneer. This is before I even started teaching. So then I got into I got into to writing, you know, as a as a sort of profession. And then uh, yeah, I mean that's one cool thing about Saigon is the barriers to entry into any field are very low. Like if you're moderately good at anything and there's a need for it, you can find your way in. You know, so the opportunities here are huge. I mean, it's the, one of the fastest, if not the fastest, growing economy in the world, right? And it is. so everything's brand new here, and everything's growing so fast. So yeah, completely. I think the opportunities here are massive, and um, it's a really exciting time. Yeah, for I think sure. In Vietnam, agreed. And I think if you can get in early and do a really good podcast that no one's ever listened to, uh, it could be huge. Who knows? We'll see what happens. It's going to be huge, huge. <laughs> so you came to Vietnam. For, for the first time in 2016? Uh, right? 2015. 2015. Uh, my last year of university. Right. And you came on a Fulbright scholarship, is that I, right? I first came here uh, during my senior year uh, doing a study abroad thing. So I, I went to Hue to study Vietnamese history and do a research project about contemporary Vietnamese artists and the way that they transform the memory of war through their artwork. So I did that and interviewed a bunch of artists and, and did this you know, final uh, presentation kind of thing and traveled a lot in Vietnam and just fell in love with the place. I was just like, wow, I just love this place. And it was, I wept when I had to go back to the States. So I went back to the States and then applied for the Fulbright Scholarship, which the application was due in like two or three weeks. And what exactly is a Fulbright Scholarship? Fulbright is a program run through the U.S. State Department that sends scholars and teachers to different parts of the world, scholars to study, to do research, and teachers, I was a, it's called an uh, ETA, uh, English Teaching Assistant, to underserved communities in, I think, I want to say 158 countries around the world. And so one of the countries uh, that Fulbright's been pretty popular in is Vietnam. So I had already been here. It's like, I want to go back. So I applied for the Fulbright to come back to Vietnam. And then I won the Fulbright. And then uh, after I graduated, like the month after I graduated, I uh, was sent to Nathan in the Mekong Delta, where I lived for a year teaching at Dai Hop Tien Yang, which is a public university uh, in, in, uh, in, in, the, in Tien Yang province of the Mekong Delta. 
And so how's your Vietnamese? <laughs> Do I know I think that more chut? <laughs> I understood that, so yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm not Vietnamese. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I have survival Vietnamese, so I like I can travel on my own and you know get my basic needs met, places to stay, food, barter, you know, have a bit of a laugh, you know, it's not conversational yet, you know, which I'm still working on it, you know. So this is the first episode of Saigon of a Saigon podcast. Yeah. And uh so people might not know if they don't live in Vietnam, why are we laughing about not speaking Vietnamese? What's what's the big challenge of the Vietnamese language? Oh, everybody is so boring. Everybody says, "Oh, the tones. I can't do the tones." Because, like, it's a tonal language. It's got five different tones. So it's like you've got, like, up, down, like, the dot, the nang, which is like a wave, uh, and uh, I guess flat is the one I didn't say yet. So it's five tones, and if you don't say stuff right, it can have, like, very comical (laughs) results. Um, I asked for, what did I ask for? Um... Uh, what was it like? Oh God! I asked for uh, one pork, ended up asking for pussy meat. <laughs> uh, and I wanted some crab soup, ended up asking for dick soup. I don't know. It's, it, it, it was, those are the funniest results, <laughs> you know. But uh, but people give up. People just like they and because especially you live in Saigon. There's so many expats. Especially if you live in D two Dao Dien, which is like like very expaty, expat friendly uh, district. There's so many there's so many foreigners around that you feel like you don't even have to try, you know. Mm. And I'm one of those people and I hate myself for it. And I think a common thing I speak to a lot of people is nobody really expects to stay here for this long. And I'm one of those people. Came for a short time just to, to study to be an English teacher, then stayed a little bit longer, then a little bit longer, and then now that's become nearly three years. I'm gonna be here for the foreseeable future. I'm already bad at languages, so that's not a good start. Then it's a tonal language which with a Scottish accent, makes it really difficult because we already add all these crazy inflections or we talk, you know, we have this rhythm to our accent. Um, like, I tend to make everything a question, but then making it go up, so then that makes the world go up. So, like, when I first came here, I tried to order vegetarian food and I, I tried to make it sound like a question, so I said, chai, and I later found out that means fire when it goes up. So I was going into a restaurant just saying fire, fire. Uh, you know, so... And I'm t- yeah, so I, I kind of like you said, I kind of gave up a little bit, almost because I didn't know I was going to stay for this long. But then, like you said as well, there's so many people that speak a decent amount of English here, right? And then you've got Google Translate as well, and so yeah, you do get a bit lazy as an expat. So, how much have you learned Vietnamese? Do you take lessons? So when I was in Fulbright, we we had a an orientation in Hanoi, and they gave us two weeks of intensive language training, and so. Although it was so much, it was about, I want to say about six hours a day. And with, with, with learning a new language, there's a drop off. Like after a few hours, there's only so much you can learn when you just kind of just get burnt out, you know. So we were just like stuffing Vietnamese into our heads. And so... And with a northern accent, I presume? They were teaching us both the vocabulary of both and the accents mm-hmm. of both. Yeah. Fortunately, so they were telling us, okay, because we're all getting placed. About fourteen of us getting placed in different parts of, you know, the north, central, and, and south. We were in Hue, and then that's even more different, right? Well, I was in Hue for for the the study abroad thing. I did right, at Western right, University, yeah. 
So for, for Fulbright, I was in Tianyang, which is like the deep south, dirty south, <laughs> Mekong Delta, fool. You know, so it was like everything there is like, you know, whereas like say, you know, you say, Mot hai ba, yo, yeah, right? Yeah. Like yo, and, and the north is like zo, you know what I mean? So like like I'm studied at Daihop Tianyang, right? And in the south, we say Tianyang, and we say that to a northerner, they go, oh, you mean Tianzang. You know what I mean? Oh, my favorite place in Vietnam is Haiyang. No, it's Hazang. You know, I think the northern accent reminds me more of Chinese because there's more Z's in it. You know, mm. it's closer to China, so it's I guess it to makes China. sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I had that intensive language training, and then, then after living, so I lived in Meitong, which was like literally no other Westerners anywhere. Like I'd see people who were like travelers sometimes, and then I met the first Westerner that actually lived in uh, Meitong like nine months into being there. So it was, you know, I was very much immersed. So eventually started picking it up by listening to it. So, so I got okay. I'm st- I still feel like I'm, my Vietnamese is not nearly as good as it should be, you know, but I'm staying in the game. I got my, my Duolingo hooked up. Uh, I, I'm working on a seven day streak this week, you know, so, you know, just Did he give you that update when every time you open it. So it's like, Oh, that's quite good. You've done it seven days. Yeah, and you can gamble. You say, oh, I, you win five points if you do seven days straight. You know? Oh, nice. Yeah, I have no idea what you use these points for, but, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> I had a friend, and she was she came over here, and she learned using Rosetta Stone and came to Saigon. I didn't realize until she got to Saigon that Rosetta Stone was exclusively northern Vietnamese, and nearly everything she learned was uh, not useful. <laughs> Really? She basically couldn't really use much of what oh, she learned because wow. it is quite different, the pronunciation. And some of the words are completely different, right? Some of the words are different. Yeah. 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 So after Fulbright, then what happened next? Well, during Fulbright. Oh, during Fulbright? Well, I was here I was here from summer. The program was from summer 2016 to summer 2017. And then in November of 2016, the election happened. Now, leading up to the election, you know, a, a lot of my friends, my colleagues in in Meitau, you know, they were sort of abreast of what was happening in the States politically. And they'd ask me, so, you know, what will you do if uh, Donald Trump gets elected? And I would always joke around, oh, well, you better clear off some room on your couch because I'm going to be crashing with you for the next four years. Ha, 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 was never going to happen. Right? right. And then it happened. And... It was just, it was just so devastating, and at the same time, like, of course, of course, that's how you felt. Yeah, there was both. There was both. Because I, I watched the the results come in in the Gem Center here in, in Saigon, and we went there with my wife, who's American, and another bunch of American friends, and we. It was a big party. Loads of hot dogs. They had the American ambassador there. You know, they had the, up on the big screens. And all the polling, everything said that Hillary Clinton was going to win. The first female president. Really exciting on a number of levels in terms of making history. And then the results came in. And this whole room, massive ballroom, was like in stunned silence. And no one could believe it. And the, and the, the speech that the American ambassador did was so... Awkward, I guess, because he, he just didn't really know. I might, I might have been a female. I'm, maybe I can't remember now, but whoever it was was speaking. Like, they didn't really know what to say. Kedosius, yeah. That's Ked- who it was. He was the ambassador. In, right, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I met him when I was in Fulbright. 
uh, before you know before the election happened, and I met the guy. I met the new guy. I forget his name. The Trump appointed uh, ambassador because oh, okay. the Fulbright's like a mm. state run, you know. Mm. So I was well, like, yeah, the State Department, some, yeah, yeah. The State Department, yeah. So I was like rubbing elbows with the, you know, I've been to the consulate's house and stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, and and I had plans to join the Foreign Service after Fulbright was done. Like, I was going to use that as, as a way to make inroads and, you know, work in an embassy or something, you know. And then I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not working for these people. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and mind you, a lot of the foreign service workers are losing their jobs. The ambassador lost his job behind this thing. And I was like, there's no way. Because, you know, you work for the foreign service. If you work, like, at the embassy, you know, you know, you, you can't speak about the way you feel so it's very funny being at these parties, you know, hanging out with, you know, people who work at the consulate. They're like, yeah, so what's up? They're like, well, mm, you know, it's just, uh, it is what it is, you know, just, uh, you know, the, yeah, not talking about that. You know, it's just very, it's like Stepford Wives kind of feel. I mean, you know, and, you know, you get, and you get to know people better and offline people will be more honest, but I can't, I just can't. And so was it, it was specifically that that led to you staying in Vietnam? Yeah, it was like, you know, I had a girlfriend back in the States and the whole nine. Um, the, the election happened November 8th. Really, it hit here on November 9th. Morning of November 9th was when it became finalized. And it was the messed up thing is like, people in the States were like, oh my God, this is terrible. All right, I'm going to go to bed and wake up tomorrow morning and try to come to grips with this. We're here, it was like 11 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I had the whole day, and then I was in Mitan, where it was like, you know, people, I was like, yo, this is crazy, and they were like, yeah, that sucks that the person you wanted to win didn't, they couldn't relate, you know, they were just like, ah, whatever, you think, Americans always think that their politics, the, whole, the world revolves around their politics, so I really didn't have anybody to even connect with about it, you know, until I came up to Saigon, but, uh, yeah, November 10th, I Skyped with my, my girl, I was like, I'm not, I'm not coming back. You know, it was tearful. It was, you know, it was brutal. But I just, there's no way. I don't want to, I don't want to be there. I don't want to, I don't want to be there, man. It's like, it's just, that's, I mean, it's a whole, you know. Does that thing though, right? Like, you you see a lot of this online, like, I'm going to leave the country, you know. And do you know what? There was actually, um, the day after the election, one of my wife's, like, high school friends or college friends, someone that she wasn't even that close with, messaged her and said, how difficult was it to get residency in New Zealand? Because we're residents of New Zealand and that's our home and that's where we'll go back to if and when we leave Vietnam. How difficult is it? Because uh, I'm fearful for my children right now and, and for life in America. And she was a, a, a person of colour or Latino, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but, you know, one of these groups that Trump had ostracised and, and made fearful. And so that was like brought it home as well. It was like, wow, this is like real. Like she's messaging, reaching out, saying, how do I leave? But then there's the other argument, like, should you stay and fight for change or should you stay and be part of the solution instead of, you know, running away? Well, yeah, that's a good question. And that, that's one that every individual has to make for themselves, you know? I mean... I was already here, so... <laughs> so you didn't run away. I didn't run you away. just stayed. I just stayed. You know what I mean? I was like, life is good here. And, you know, talking to my friends, I got my, my buddy uh, Brandon Coleman, uh, uh, former visual photographer dude for, for Saigoneer. It really hit home. He's a buddy of mine. He's he's a incredibly 
good human being and great photographer too. We became friends out here. He's, he's African-American like myself. And his time in Vietnam came to a close. And he moved back to Atlanta uh, with, with his, his uh, fiance. And I remember when he moved back, he was like my canary. Because I was considering, you know, after things died down a bit, like, yeah, maybe I'll go back, you know, maybe whatever. It's a great but a harsh analogy. <laughs> he was like your canary. <laughs> He's my canary in the gas mine. Is anyone mine. listening, if anybody's listening that's maybe under 25, they probably have no idea what that reference is. So maybe I should explain that. So <laughs> in the olden days... Which was not that long not ago. Not that long ago. They're bringing coal back, so they when uh, coal miners would go into coal mines underground... They would bring a canary with them because if they hit uh, some kind of natural gas that was noxious or, or toxic, they would have this canary. So if the canary, who was much less resistant to these poisonous gases, died, they would say, oh, we hit, we hit something. We got to get out of here. So the canary would be there just so they could, you know, they could know what the air quality was like. So Brandon was my canary. He went back into the coal mine of America and he went back and, and I remember we were messaging like a few like maybe a month after I was like yo so how is it and he I was three words don't leave Asia wow and it was it was I got it man you know he was like these people are wilding out people are really people are really comfortable and what that means is that that people who are who are racist really wait it's become very mainstream or at least, you know, at that time and, and, and that part of the of, of the United States, he's, he's in the South, you know, um, New York is, you know, it's, I could say it's more progressive. The racism is different. <laughs> A lot of black people be like, oh, I like the Southern racism, but they call you the N-word to your face. I don't really, I don't really prefer that. I don't know, man. Like, I, I've just, maybe it's how I've been raised, like, you know, because, you know, I've been to the South and I've dealt with that. And that's that's not good either. You know what I mean? It's not like I've, I had, you know, I had I just had one dude in Florida, Jacksonville, Florida, called me boy. And he was younger than me. I was like, what? I was like, no, no. You know, first of all, I'm older than you. You don't know. And like I got like really kind of aggressive with the dude. And the funny thing was he was just more shocked than anything. He had said it like he didn't know he had said anything wrong. He was like. No, I don't know, boy. I'm just, that's just how we talk down here. Well, I'm not from down here, you know. So, you know, I don't want to. Oh, would you have said that, that to a white person? No, of course not. <laughs> but another, but you know, but there's a lot. But you can go the other way too. Sometimes a white dude will be like, "Hey, brother," you know. And I'm like, "Man, you don't talk like that to 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 to, to white folks. Just call me dude. You don't have to like be all extra about the shit." So, have you seen the show Atlanta? Of course, yeah. And he show. he goes into that a little bit, right? Like. The way white people will interact yeah. with African Americans yeah. differently. Oh yeah, there's the episode. Where, yeah, <laughs> when, they, when they go into the, the they go to that party with the with the, the, the like her friend who has the white husband. He's like he's he's like doing poetry and all. That's a great show. I yeah, love that. Darius good. is my spirit animal. Uh, <laughs> I love Darius. That's my favorite character like on any show ever. But. uh yeah, so all that is to say, you know, the political climate is... And it wasn't like it was great when I left. Like, you know, a few months before I left, I would had the cops pull guns on me and point them at my head for having expired registration tags on my car. I'm sitting in my car. These guys, four cops coming towards my car. I'm stopped in a, in a parking 
the parking lot of my school. I just bought this car. Tags are expired. They put on, put their lights on. I'm like, oh, okay, you know what? It's probably the tags. I just got the car, whatever. And then I'm watching them approach my car with their guns pulled out. My windows are open, and this is the gag, right? One of them's at one window going, keep your hands on the steering wheel. The other one's like, take your keys out of the ignition. And I'm like, this is how you become a hashtag, right? And then I'm thinking, what what's the picture that they're going to use on my Facebook when they kill me, right? What picture are they going to use? Be like, oh, you know, they're going to have a picture of me giving the camera the middle finger. Oh, well, yeah, Fulbright scholar or whatever. This is the person that, you know what I mean? That's what I thought that too. I thought, I got a Fulbright scholarship. I'm about to go to Vietnam and these guys going to, you know, these guys going to wax me? And then... And then, I, then that's when I got really chill, and I told, I talked to them. I said, I have to take my hands off of the steering wheel to take my keys out of the ignition. I put on my best job interview voice. You know, they like that. And uh, so I got out of it alive, and they realized that uh, that it was my car. They thought that maybe it was stolen. They still impounded it, and I had to pay about $400 to get it out. That's another hustle. You know, Why is America the way that it, that it is? <laughs> I don't, I used to live there. I'm white. So I don't, I haven't experienced this. So it's not the America that I know, but I know it through the media. And I just, it's like, and I know it from, you know, friends and, and I just don't get it. Oh. Because I'm from the UK and we obviously have racism, like for sure, but we don't have it like that. I don't think anyway, we don't have guns for one, but I, I just don't think we have the randomly pulling people over like that. Guns in your face. You're guilty for everything like. Yeah, it's a tradition. It's not new. It's just, it's just it's a long. It's just America is super racist, right? But pretends it's not. Is that fair? I mean, not it, everyone, but right. In some ways, it's very progressive. But the racism is this. There was never. It's never not been racist. You mm. know what I mean? You got like you know you got like you know three hundred some years of slavery. Like there was slavery way before even it was the United States, right? And then you got like after slavery ends, you got the Jim Crow era where it's not slavery. But you can, if if you're black, you can be strung up by people in a town and hung in broad daylight, and they made a whole like event out of it. People hang out in the town square and you know hang you and burn you to death, and you know people be eating popcorn and shit. You know what I mean? So so then there's that, and then there's like so that's like that lasts for I guess like about seventy or eighty years. Uh, probably getting my numbers wrong. And then there's like the civil rights era. And then, like, the final civil rights bill got signed in 1968. That's, like, four years before my birthday. You know what I mean? And then there's, like... 50 years ago. Right. And then there's, like, the 60s and 70s where, you know, the sort of, like, uh, progressive political leadership of of blacks and African Americans are, like, incarcerated, killed, you know? And, I mean, there's an unbroken legacy of racism in America leading up to the present day. The most recent that's that's way more visual now, like since Rodney King and now with the internet, is now that you see that police will will, you know, kill unarmed black people with impunity. And now it's like very shocking, but that's that's not new. It's just that we everybody's gotta We can see it now. Yeah. But is it changing anything do you think? Now that we can see it? I think there's there's more outrage, but I don't really see anything changing so much. I get, so so the Black Lives Matter movement has risen out of that, 
and they're really concerned with with changing laws. So now you got body cams, but the problem is, you know, it's like on one hand it's raising more awareness because things are on camera, but on the other hand, it's also desensitizing people because it's like, oh well, oh so here's another black dude getting killed by the cops, and you just shake your head and go, tsk tsk tsk. That's a shame, you know what I mean? So yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't. I, I although recently there there was a case uh, with there a cup there have been a few cases where cops have been going to jail. You know, it's it's interesting to see what's going to happen with this cop and in, in, uh, this female cop in in Texas that like broke into this, this guy's house. Supposedly, she thought it was her house and killed him. And turned out, oh, she's like, oh, wrong apartment, you know. And they got film of the aftermath. So awareness is 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 changing. I think a few laws are changing. Things are are going maybe in a better direction slightly. But it's really far from where it needs to be. And so what would it take for you to go back? Not sure. I mean, it's really, it's really hard for me to envision right now. But not necessarily because America is trash. Just because things are really good here. Yeah. Things are really good here for me. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about that. What's going on in Saigon? And so what, you, you were in Mitoa? I was in Meetong, yeah. What brought you up to Saigon then? I would come on the weekends often. You know, I would either drive up on my bike or I would take a bus up. It's like a th- $3 to take a bus. I'd get an Airbnb or I'd stay in a hostel and just kind of check out what was going on. You know, go to Indica, you know, hang out with other expats, made some friends, you know, um, had, a, had a couple of friends like through Fulbright that we're living here. Uh, shout out to Alvin Bowie. Um, and, uh, and I just really liked it. And so then I decided that's where I would live after the program ended and then moved up to Saigon, had a job within minutes practically, you know, and what te- was that job? teaching job working for ILA as a, as a, an English teacher. Um, and what, what qualifications did you need for that? Cause there's a lot Right now in Vietnam, about uh, kind of cowboy English teachers. Not, I, I know you're not one of them, but about how people just come over here and they think, uh, you know, a lot of the stereotype is because they're white and because they can speak English that they will just get a job. So obviously that wasn't the case for you. So how did you get a job as a as an English teacher? Being qualified. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I had a. I, I had so for a... anyone thinking of coming to be an English teacher, what what's the process for that? You you really. It would behoove you to have a bachelor's degree and a TESOL or a TEFL uh, certificate. Um, if you have a CELTA or a DELTA, even even better. Um, but really, if you've got a bachelor's degree, I have a bachelor's degree. I uh, took a TEFL course for Fulbright, or a TESOL course, rather, online. Teaching English as a second language. Right. Um, I took an online one. I didn't pay for it, so I didn't get the certificate. All I had to do was was send uh, Fulbright like the the screenshot that said I finished the course. So I did that. Legit, legit, right? And then, but then while I was in Mital, I took an online Tesla course. I decided to get to go the other way, and then uh, and then I paid for that and I got a certificate. I got it on Groupon, uh, paid about forty bucks for it, right? And that was, and between that and and my experience with Fulbright 
I was able to, to get a job at, at Eli. And so what's life like as an English teacher then in, in Saigon? I love it. It really keeps me grounded. You know, it keeps me accountable. I've got to be there at a certain day, at a certain time. I have a, I have a killer schedule um, where I work two evenings a week and then pretty much all day on the weekends. Um, so that really gives me a lot of free time to do the writing that I need to do, you know, for my freelance jobs and for comedy. I'm also doing uh, voiceover work uh, for, for Tail City. Um, so, you know, during the day on the weekdays, and I have a, three weeknights off a week as well, you know, I have enough time to, to do, my, do my other stuff. But as an English teacher, it's great. I, I, I mean, it's not always easy. Right now, I've got a bunch of good classes. I'm mostly teaching teens. I've taught every, I've, my youngest student ever was four, my oldest, uh, 32. So I have a really broad range of, uh, of, of ages and learning levels, you know, but I really, as a teacher, especially teaching teens, I feel like I am affecting the growth of the country in a way. You know, I really try to imbue upon my students the idea of themselves as global citizens and try to, you know, just help them see things in a way that they might not be privy to otherwise. Uh, yeah. So I, I really do enjoy it. And it's really the bulk of my income. You know, I could, I could really just teach for 20 hours a week, even less than that and do fine, you know, but that gives me the financial freedom to pursue all these other things, including writing and stand up comedy. And part of that is Saigon Funny People, which you're a co-founder of. So how did that come about? Well, there was a guy named Adam Palmiter, uh, also from New York. Um, he was doing a lot of shows here. And like he was doing the open mic at Indica. He was doing shows at Heart of Darkness. And so he put me on. Um, I went to see one of his shows and we were shooting the shit outside one day. And I had been talking to him like like hey i kind of want to do stand-up he was like yeah yeah that's great that's great and then one day we were shooting the shit outside of pew pew and he was like hey you're funny you ever think about doing stand-up comedy so you hadn't done it before i hadn't done it i hadn't done it in saigon yet right right i had done it twice like once my last year of university oh that's all i thought when you came here you were like you know long-term comic you've been doing it for a long time oh no no i literally did it twice once basically on a dare for an anthropology class and then in la and then once in Riverside, California, right before I moved out here. So I had like kind of funny things that I was thinking about. And then Adam was like, hey, you do stand-up. I was like, well, I've done it before. Yeah, I've been, wanting, been trying to tell you I want to do it. So he invited me to do an open mic. So I wrote like six minutes and then started doing it in, at Indica. And then all of a sudden he's put me on these different shows. And I got invited to do the Vietnam comedy competition that year, which was that was uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. That one, uh, I think it was uh, Vuman 2 and mm-hmm. We Lay ended up winning the Saigon uh, heat of that one and then going up to Hanoi for the next part. Um, so, yeah, but that was like two months after I'd started doing comedy that all of a sudden I'm in the biggest comedy competition in Vietnam, um, which is not to pat myself on the back. Again, low barriers to entry for every field you want to get into. There's only like five comics. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I was fourth. You know, <laughs> oh well. Yeah, no, right. there, there were like there were about a dozen of us mm. like starting out, and then you know they they got it down, and now it's you know so then so then Adam ended up getting a really good gig and leaving town, 
And then, you know, he had kind of brought a bunch of us in, including uh, Angie the Diva, uh, Vooman 2, and, uh, and uh, Mark Burke, uh, who's a... Uh, the people know him as Fook. His Vietnamese name is Fook. Who well, you should actually have him. He's a guy who was born and raised in Saigon, and I don't think he's ever left. He's never left the country, but if he, he speaks, I would say in a perfect uh, native accent. Except he sounds like he's from Boston. Yeah, he's got an IELTS of eight, right? He's got an IELTS of eight. He, which, which he likes to tell that in his shows, I think. Yeah. yeah, he likes to brag yeah. about that. He learned to speak English from listening to Bill Burr's, I would say, podcast. He would say podcast. <laughs> uh, so so it was like, yeah, Angie, uh, two, Foop, and myself started Saigon Funny People, like sort of like to kind of fill the void uh, that, that Adam Palmer left. And mm-hmm. so what's happening with Saigon Funny People? How's it been going then? It's going great. Then? Angie's, I mean, Angie's running it. We've got just bringing in, it's great, just bringing in international comics. Um... Still got the open mic in Indica. Um, just shows popping up. She's got an all-women show called Banshees. Um, yeah, we just shows a lot of every shows. Night now, there's shows like crazy. yeah, not just not just Saigon Funny People. There's yeah. Comedy Saigon. Uh, Jeremy, who's like a longtime friend of Saigon Funny People, has got a mic in D7. Uh, Tommy Perchinski's trying to get a mic together. So all. Um, uh, Devin, Devin Gray's, Devin Gray's got Pasteur Street. You know, there's like we had the show last night at the open mic in Indica. Mm. There's like a show tomorrow. There's two shows on Thursday. Um, three shows if you count the uh, the the benefit for Olga that that I'm hosting on on Thursday. And so uh, yeah, it's just so much comedy. You know, which is is like, it too much now? Do you think? Like, is it getting oversaturated? Yeah, yeah. Could be a city of 10 million people, but maybe, like, I think there's 100,000 expats. Right. I might be wrong on that. Right, something like that. Maybe less. I think you're about right. Yeah. And Um, a lot of those are Korean expats as well. Right. So that would bring the number of maybe native English speakers down a bit too. So, yeah, do you think it's it's going to get, or is it saturated? It's a, I'll say this, it's a small scene. And just from my own perspective, I don't like getting up on stage and seeing anyone else in the audience that has seen me do the joke that I'm about to do. It's you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and you lock eyes with that person and you're like, oh, you've had this one before. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird feeling. So for me, like I think the most important thing for me is just to get better at doing it so I have something to offer. I think the temptation is to be like, well, let's just keep, you know, doing shows and, you know, having more and more opportunities to, for people to come and see comedy, which is great because, you know, the thing is, the other side of that is somebody has a mic, you know, uh, Todd Bruns had a had a, a mic in, in D7 a couple of months ago, and I had just come back from, from Hue, where I was uh, performing uh, with, with a few people, I got invited uh, by Keila Rose uh, to do that, and in front of a different audience, then came back here and do, to, do this mic in D7, which is like, for anybody who doesn't live in Saigon, D7 is like one of the outlying districts. Like people that I know in D7 are people who lived in central Saigon for a while and just got over it and they just wanted to get out and kind of chill. So it's like a mini Singapore almost, isn't it? Right. 
you know, big Korean uh, community. It's like very recently developed. And so it's like a different audience out there. So if you can get in front of different audiences, I think it's great. And I think that's kind of what's happening. It's like these different mics are happening in different places, you know, but, but it's up to the comics to really come with stronger and stronger material, you know. So that's kind of where I'm at. So sometimes I take breaks and, you know, I won't go up for like a few weeks because, you know, I just want to write different stuff, you know, rather than, you know, just going up and, and telling the same old joke. And I got some that, you know, that I bring back around. I like walk around and look at the audience. Oh, who's here? Oh, okay. They never heard this one. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, I think my best ever show was up in Hanoi because no one had seen it before. And I had all these jokes I'd used quite a few times. And I knew they worked, and I went up there, and I was quite confident, and I think it was, yeah, probably my best show. But then you come back here, and you go Indica on a Monday night, and it's the same faces, and you're like, oh, I don't really have anything new, but I have everything that I've done before is now better, because I practiced it so much. Yeah. But I feel really awkward. I know. Because you've seen it progress almost from, like, you know, when it wasn't that funny, maybe, or maybe I was nervous to now, like... No, yeah, it's a, no, your stuff's gotten a lot better, man. I, I, we did that show in D7 at... At Malt South. Uh, I think you put that show together, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you did quite well that night, man. That was a good night as well. Yeah. I wasn't due to perform that night, and then we had a few people pull out and a few people late, and I was like, that was really helpful. I just decided, I was like, all right, well, I'll go on because no one else, well, we a couple of spots came free. And then the best thing was I just had my hand in my pocket, and I had my notes from the last show that I'd done. I was like, oh. So I just kind of quick scan of that, and then just got up and kind of did that and yeah that was that was a good show so that's probably one of my best as well yeah it was, that was a fun night good. too yeah that was a good night yeah. so let's move on to the final part of the show uh, where I'm going to ask every guest the same questions about Saigon okay. and we're going to see the different answers that we get from people so the first question is obviously Vietnam is very famous for its food the food here is absolutely delicious what are your top three Vietnamese foods you know it's funny because there's, there's a the, my favorite foods, like my go-to foods, are like quite simple uh, dishes. Like right now, I'm on a on a mi wang kick, right? I just found a spot in my neighborhood, and it's just like. And the funny thing, I, I was never into mi wang. Like I tried it when I first moved to Vietnam, and I was like, oh, I was all right, you know. And then I guess my palate has just changed because I've been just eating so much Vietnamese food. And then I had someone I was in Hue doing that that show, and I was like, oh, this is good. So I found a place right in my neighborhood. So I love that. It's like noodles. Well, I guess it's cumin or something like that, and chicken. Entirely oh, sure. Yeah. I think it's one of these things. If you get a good one, it's good, right? Because yeah. like Vietnamese food is not homogenous. It's right. not all equal. Like you can have yeah. good pho and you can have bad pho. Right. But I guess you need to taste a lot of it to to know what's yeah. what's good and what's bad. Yeah, and mi wang is like a central dish. It's not. It's like it's from. I think it's from Da Nang. So it's not, like, mm. hugely popular in Saigon. Not as, like, ubiquitous as, like, pho or something mm. like that, you know. So Mi Wang, love that. Uh, one of my long-standing favorites is Ba Kha, the beef stew. That, that's, uh... With the bread? Yeah, you get it with the bread or the noodles. It's, oh. like, a, it's like a thick, robust, brown beef stew. There's a place in Funyan, like, right by here, uh, where they're only open from, like, maybe 6 in the morning to about noon, but if you go early, they got the good cuts, and it's just like, just tender cuts of beef, and they got carrot, peppers, and onions. Oh, man, it's so good. All right, good, I'm going man. there. That sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. I'll need to get the address off you. I'll post okay. it in the notes of okay. the podcast if anyone wants to go okay. check it out. Yeah, it's in a little ham 
like up up the street, nice. like uh, yeah. And that's the other amazing thing about Saigon, right? The hems, the laneways, like there's so much life that you go, like you can live somewhere or drive by somewhere, and you use the main street, and you just think it's a main street, and then something will take you up a hem, or you have a reason to go somewhere, and then you suddenly the life opens up, and there's a market, and there's food, and there's people, and it's, and then that's why I love when I come home, I have to drive through the market, and it's just. I live in Vietnam. This yeah. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're so right, man. Sometimes I'll just, like when I move to a new neighborhood, I'll just get lost. I'll just drive yeah, through yeah. the hems just to idea. see what's around, you know. That's how I found that Mi Wang place. That's how I found this Bok Ha place. You know, just, just try, because I think I would say of all the business establishments in Viet, in, in Saigon, I would say a good 40 to 60% of them are, is food. There's just restaurants, stands, like, you know, they got tons of Western stuff, if that's what you're into, whatever. But there's just food everywhere, mm. man, you know? So, yeah, it's a, it's a foodie haven, man. So that's, sure. so Bokha would be my second. And then third would just be uh, just the Biahoy seafood, like, just go find a place on the canal here. There's one on Trung Sa, like, right on the street where, where you live. Like closer to uh, going towards Bintan, that uh, just sit down there and just have seafood, man. Just all kinds of seafood, mokchinyon, which is like fried squid with like breading on it, with nukmam, like like a fish sauce next to it, and just clams and oysters and crab and fried rice and uh and uh, raomung saotoi like you get like a like morning glory That's with one garlic of my favorites raomung saotoi oh, yeah for sure man. and dohu chinsa what's that tofu with chili lemon oh yeah, 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 yeah my yeah, pronunciation yeah, is probably yeah, yeah, terrible yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's one of my favorites yeah, yeah for great. sure yeah. i've not had dinner yet i'm starving now i'm, starving <laughs> I'm too, so man. hungry so let's hungry. move on so Saigon has an unbelievable craft beer scene if you don't live here. You might not know that. Um, started off with Pasteur, and now we're all the way up to like Heart of Darkness, Winking Seal. And so that's for me, because I'm a big craft beer fan, is one of the best things about Saigon is, is the quality of the beer here. So what's your favorite bar and your favorite beer in Saigon? And you don't have to choose a craft beer, but if you say something like Ba Ba Ba, we're going to end the podcast now and you can just leave. So well, what's your favorite bar and your favorite beer? Uh, favorite beer is Tiger. Oh, <laughs> Ow, Ow. Ouch! Um, I think just for the sake of just Indica has a place in my heart, just because it's the one of the first bars, if not the first bar, definitely the first bar I was ever like that I ever visited on a regular basis. You know, I always have my birthday there. Um, they just always treated me well. And then never mind, you know, it's my first time going up and doing comedy, do comedy there, you know. It's my first much, time doing comedy was at Indica as well, yeah. Right, the open mic and the staff, some of my oldest friends in Saigon are people that I know from Indica, either from hanging out there or people that work there, Sora and, and An, who doesn't work there anymore. Um, just like, I just like the setup of it. It's in the cut. It's got the outdoor patio. You've got the inside. You know, they've got a bunch of great event, events and music and, you know, they, the, they, they bring, they don't, they're not really big with, with craft beers. They don't have their own craft beer, but they'll, they'll make you. They got a few though. Yeah. They, what's, what's the, they got Tay Tay and they got Pastor Street. Right. Yeah. Right. They do have Pastor Street. Mm-hmm. They have a couple of them. They have, so. like a, they have like the Passion Fruit and Ale. Platinum, I think as well. Platinum as well. Yeah. Uh, for craft beer, 
I gotta go with I gotta go with Heart of Darkness because they just they just make some beers that are just like wow. This is like the the IPAs IPAs are just so strong. It's like it's like malt liquor with none of the shame. You know, you feel like you're really you know I mean you you pay you pay for it. But like if you have like two or three yeah. of those IPAs, like like it's it's a wrap. Song. I've you know seen a I mean? friend drink five pints of IPA, and uh, it was the drunkest I've ever seen him. It was he was funny that night. That was a, that was a fun night. <laughs> if you let somebody drink five of those things, you're not a friend. That's just <laughs> he's a fast drinker. You don't even know. It wasn't until like the next day. I was like, man, did you drink? He's like five. I was like, mate. They're like seven point eight percent. Yeah, some of them are higher. Yeah, there's, there's a, I think there's a. I want to say there's a 10.3. Oh, I'm sure there would be. Uh, the, it's not the Kurtz Insane, but it's like that other, they got all, you know, the double secret stupid yeah, dark yeah, IPA, yeah. whatever, some you know. dark beers that are that strong. Yeah. So, um, Saigon changes a lot between the day and the night. What's your favorite daytime place to go for a drink or to hang out in? There's, there's definitely no shortage of coffee shops. Like, during the day, if I'm out, I'm probably not hanging out with anyone. I'm probably finding a coffee shop within which to do writing, you know? So there's like, there's like tons of, of coffee shops in Saigon. Um, I hang out at, at ID Cafe over there in D3. I'll go to Kong Cafe, which is like a cafe, uh, a chain where they have this great coconut coffee. Um, there's a there's a bunch of little spots. There's there's a place in, in Funyan. I don't even know the name of it, but it's, it's it's basically like a coffee shop built into a miniature jungle. It's just crazy. You just, I mean. It almost seems like you, if, if each expat in Saigon wanted to have their very own coffee shop to call their own in terms of being like the only Westerner in there, it could possibly happen. I think it might, yeah. I think it possibly could. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, how, like on my block, they're on my block, I'm talking about the one stretch of road from corner to corner. I want to say there are six coffee shops. I'm like, how are all these places doing business? And they you know all I mean? do. And they all do. They're doing great. And there's more opening all the time. All the time. You know, so so that's like during during the day, that's that's kind of what I like to do is just find a chill coffee coffee shop, take my laptop, do whatever business I have to do. Um, there's, there's an interesting place that just reopened uh, called City Beer Station. And so you're talking about how Saigon changes from the daytime to the night to the nighttime. City Beer Station in the daytime it's a coffee shop, but at night it's like a pop-up cocktail, like street cocktail bar. Like so, in Saigon, you have these these uh, like beer places and food places where you have like these little plastic stools where you sit there and you like eat or drink. And this place, you know, and most of the time they so they serve bottled beer or or beer, you know, uh, fresh beer in a glass. But this place, they make like full-on like cocktails. So you get like a seventy thousand dollar whiskey, seventy thousand dong. I do that. Oh, I do that <laughs> yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. Right. We balling out of control over <laughs> here, man. Seventy thousand dollar drinks ain't nothing to us. Do you know, I'm back to the states with my wife, and one the first morning we were there, we were discussing money and money we had. Did we need to transfer and how much we needed to exchange and things like that. And so we're sitting in Texas in a breakfast place, and we're talking about like millions. And hundreds of thousands, and like yeah, we got to transfer four hundred thousand from this account. We got to exchange two, three million, whatever. And then it wasn't until after we were like, we never said dong in that conversation. So people overheard us. They were just like, 
those guys there are so rich they must be <laughs> loaded yeah 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 that's the thing yeah you move to Saigon you're instantly a millionaire yeah it's right? amazing yeah. yeah so like just to explain that a little bit it's 23,000 dong around that for every US dollar you know so 100,000 dong is roughly like four point something dollars yeah. so you you're just dealing with money in, in huge increments and yeah. you get sort of desensitized to it for a bit but these yeah these drinks you get like a whiskey sour for about 70,000 dong which is like three bucks yeah I gotta check this place out I've not been since it reopened so like, yeah. it's on the list it's kind of a floating it's been in this is like the third place yeah. that it's been at since you know I spent one evening trying to find it going out laneways and making phone calls and ended up not finding it in there. <laughs> <laughs> having to just go home. Yeah, let's hit it up after the interview, man. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. So, one thing I want to ask everybody, because I've been here, as I've mentioned, nearly three years. I've had massive ups and downs living in this city, like, to the point in the first year where I couldn't wait to leave. Like, I was saying to my wife, like, when are we leaving? Like, I'm counting down the days to go back. I wanted to go back to New Zealand. And it's a roller coaster. It's crazy. It's busy. It's energetic. There's air pollution. It's dirty. It's noisy. But, I love living here now, and a lot of people do. Why do you stay here? I think what happens to a lot of people, with whether they realize it or not, is just culture shock. Like, you come, and it's new, and it's like, oh, this is great, it's awesome, it's like, oh, it's so busy, oh, look at all these pagodas, and, and then, a few months in, you're just, you're just hungry for your home food, you know, you want to be able to, I mean, I mean, for me, I went through my culture shock, shock living in Mitong. So it hit me hard. You know, I got like kind of depressed for a while. And as with most struggles in life, people often give up when it gets tough. You know, there's a, there's a, an old quote from a, a Buddhist monk from the thir- from 13th century Japan, Nichiren Daishonin, I'm like misquoting it, but it's like, it takes 12 days to get from this one place where he lived to Kamakura. It takes 12 days. And he says, if you give up on that, on that 11th day, you're never going to see the sunset over Kamakura. So a lot of times people don't know exactly how long it takes to overcome that. And they just think, oh, it's always going to be like this. And they leave. I heard a story of uh, someone who was telling me their friend came to Saigon, had a job lined up, and arrived on the Friday and left on the Monday. He said, can do it. Of course, because everything is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Think about, Neil, think about, like, when you first came here and how unfamiliar and crazy things were. And every once in a while now, you might be driving and then you'll see you'll arrive at some place that you remember being when you first got here and you go, you go, wow, this place looks so big and crazy. I remember sitting in this very spot or walking on this very street and just being like, yo, this is totally insane. And now it's like, oh, that's where this is. You start to get oriented. You know, it takes, it just takes a while. You know, I got, I've got a joke about like, I'm not sure if I'm becoming culturally acclimated or if I'm losing my mind. Right. Because when I first came here, I couldn't even cross the street. You know, so Saigon traffic, I'm sure you've talked about Saigon traffic a lot. You know, it just, just doesn't stop. It's just like a constant flow of cars. So when you want to cross the street, you just got to get in there and the cars go around you. It's like organized chaos. But when you first see it, you're like, there's no way I can do that. Yeah, for sure. Next thing you know, you realize you just got to get in there. Last week, I walked across the road outside of here with my Vietnamese friend. 
And she said, she went, Neil, you, you look so Vietnamese. And I thought she meant the way I looked. And I was like, what do you mean I look Vietnamese? And she went, the way you cross the road, you just walk out and walk yeah. across. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Cool. like so different that you just... Yeah. So easy now, but then you see the tourists on the first day and they're like... <gasps> Yeah. Which we've been there, right? So you, of course. you don't judge them for it. So what makes you stay then? I just love it. Yeah. I just love it. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, have so much leisure time. If I wanted it, if I really, if I didn't do all my other freelancing stuff, like I, you know, I, I, I could get by on working 20 hours a week. I haven't cooked a meal Maybe one or two. I haven't cleaned the toilet in three you years. Know, yeah. yeah. I don't even clean my apartment anymore. Like, I, like you know, for like a relatively low amount of money, there's a cleaning lady that comes and cleans my apartment and washes my clothes twice a week. And I'm not rich. I'm not, yeah. like, I'm not balling out of control. It's just, you know, it's a serviced apartment, yep. you know? And I eat out all the time. I can I can go out all the time. And, you know, I'm I'm close to all these other countries. So on my time off, you know, I can travel. I've been I've been in, like, four different countries since I've been out here. You know, and you can just travel around in Vietnam and there's like so many amazing places, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just great. It's just great in so many ways. And, and there's so many other people, even though they're not like me in the sense that we don't come from the same place, but there are other expats that, you know, that are, you know, experiencing the same thing I am and, and the local life, local folks a lot are really amazing and you have all these crazy and funny interactions. Like even if you don't understand what you're saying you just end up laughing, you know, my grab right over here. We were having a conversation until we hit the wall of my Vietnamese. And then we just cracked up laughing and just continued to, mm. to ride over here, you know. I had not over here. I was over there to get my bike, but another story. <laughs> so what would you say is the most misunderstood thing about Saigon? I, just, I guess probably how much growth has taken place here. When I went back the first time, uh, when I was, I was here studying, and I went back to the United States. Uh, this young woman from my university, she had heard that I that, that I had uh, been to Vietnam. She's Viet Q, meaning she's Vietnamese American, and she's like, "Yeah, I, she wanted to get a like a there's this program that the Clintons, Hillary and, and Bill Clinton, were running, getting grants to students who wanted to start projects, and she wanted to start a project in Vietnam." And so she knew that I had been here, and she'd never been to Vietnam before. She grew up in the States. Her parents were refugees, and she approached me about wanting to start this initiative in Vietnam. And so we met in this library, and I'm like, yeah, okay, well, I can do anything. I'll do anything I can to help. She's like, yeah, well, I want to start this initiative just bringing food to all the hungry people in Vietnam because we know, I know it's just so, you know, things are so bad since the communists took over. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, you know, when I lived in Vietnam, I mean, hanging out with my local friends in Hue, where I, where I lived right before that, you know, we ate like four or five times a day. We were always eating, you know, it just seemed like, you know, life was what happened in between meals, you know? So there's, there's a misunderstanding just about Vietnam in general, you know, that first of all, as an American, Americans have not separated the name of the country, Vietnam, from the war, right? So when you say Vietnam, the first thing that comes to them, to their minds is, oh yeah, the horrible things that happened to America. when you get here, it's not even like part of the conversation, like you don't notice it. I'm sure 
there are ramifications that are still happening. But as an expat here in Saigon, I mean, I've never really spoken to anyone about the war. You don't see any real relics of it unless you go to the museum about the war. But yeah, I agree. That's a very common thing. I did see something right, like literally about 300 meters from here, which is, and this is like on a dark note, but um, right across the river, we're on Chung Sa, on Huang Sa, right by that Greek restaurant Mm -hmm. that's there. Uh, I saw a woman walking in the street and she was carrying a baby and the baby's head was like the size of just a lo- like a large mm. it was bigger than a basketball mm. and it was a baby yeah I've seen that before and, it's encephalitis I think it's right and I'm not sure if it was encephalitis or if it was a it was you know I know there's there's still a lot of uh, environmental degradation mm. from from Agent Orange mm. and the different uh, chemicals that, that the US used against the Vietnamese and in, in, in the war um, but for the most part yeah if you try to approach like 99.9% of local Vietnamese people and talk about the war. They're just over, just like, I mean, I understand, like, I would be tired of the name of my country being associated with this terrible war. Well, they don't war. call it the Vietnam War, they call it the American, American War, right? Yeah. As well as should. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. I mean, yeah. I remember I was talking to an American online and he asked me, did, did, did I see a lot of Amerasians? And I, I kind of knew what he was asking, but I wanted to clarify. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, you know, do you see a lot of, like, you know, half-white, half-Vietnamese people from, you know, when the soldiers went over? And, you know, I was like, he isn't meaning to be, but I was like, you're so ignorant. What do you think all the GIs came over and just impregnated everybody? And then, like, what, 40 years later, there's just all these people walking about the streets that are half-Asian, half-Vietnamese. No, it's, everyone's Vietnamese. I'm sure that did happen, and I'm sure there's a few but to think that like your first thought is about the Vietnam War and then to think, did our soldiers go over there and impregnate everyone and now there's all these American, Asian people walking about? Right, that's, right. Is that where your first thought goes to? Right, I think that's... The, I mean, I know that it happens and, and I have seen people, but the fact that that's the first place that says more about him than it does about like the actual reality that people are living on the ground, like this kind of... Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's got like some kind of weird fantasy. I, did, I will. I will say that the first day I was here, I saw the first day that I was ever in Vietnam. I was in Da Nang, and I saw like a you know Ban Mi lady, and she was clearly like half black. Right. She was a little older than me, and she was just like you know. And I looked at her, and we looked at each other in the eyes, and then she just gave me this nod. Like, yes, you're seeing what you think you see. I wasn't even sure if she spoke English or not. And I was like, when that was my first day here, I was like, whoa, what is about to happen here? But that said, she was one of the last people of that, you know, category that I saw. So as I mentioned, Saigon is a crazy place to live, well enjoyable, but I feel especially for expats, every now and again, you just got to get out of town. And it's difficult because it's big seething metropolis concrete it's one of the densest cities in the world you can drive for an hour in any direction and you're st- it still looks like you're in the middle of downtown <laughs> right <laughs> you can drive for an hour downtown and still be in downtown yeah, yeah. at the wrong time yeah, yeah. <laughs> so where's your favorite place to get out of town my new spot is Vong Tao mm. it's my new favorite place to visit outside of town I mean if I if I want to go like far Dalat is really lovely but you know I can I mean I I really like long motorbike rides, you know, so I can, 
I've driven a couple of times. It's about three hours east of Saigon. It's a beach town. Tons of great food, seafood, especially the seafood out here. The seafood in Vung Tao is like ridiculous stuff I've never seen before. Had mantis shrimp. It looks like an alien. It tastes freaking amazing. It's like a whole animal that's nothing but lobster tail. Um, bunch of cool bars, and the beach is lovely. You go a little bit further, and you get to Muine. But, uh, but I found a, a cool few cool spots. Found one really awesome bar in Vung Tao called Peace and Love. That's got this whole hip hop theme. They got graffiti everywhere. They got a half pipe for people who skate. A half pipe. It's just ridiculous. So yeah, Vung Tao cool. is like my new getaway. I've mm-hmm. been out there. Like and how far a bike ride is that? It's about three hours by bike, mm-hmm. two hours by bus. Um, yeah, it's cool by the beach, town. right? Yeah. yeah, it's beach town. Good place to go to. Yeah. So my last question: uh, What advice would you give to someone who's thinking of living here? would say just do it but I wouldn't be as quick to say that uh, you can do it you can make it out here and if you're looking for a job um, it's I don't think it's oversaturated yet so if you get you get a degree in a, a tepal or a tessel uh, it's definitely doable but uh, yeah with that in mind and if you have an open mind and an open heart and you're willing to experience new things and Try new food and meet new people. And definitely, though, I would say what was told to me by the professor, David Biggs, uh, who brought me out here the first time, was just take all your expectations and throw them shits in the garbage because <laughs> they, they will not serve you. Because <laughs> you're, yeah, you're not, you just, there's nothing can prepare you except to be like just be open and to to go with what happens say yes to experiences especially if you are able to make friends with local people and they're like yo come to my family's house for tet you know and they just they kind of want to show you off sometimes hey look at this friend i made just do it take any opportunity like that just if you know i end up hanging out a lot of times like at least once every couple of months, the guys, the garage guys that work in the, the garage of ILA where I work at, you know, they throw parties there at least once or twice a month. I don't go every time, but I'm always invited. I'm like strongly encouraged. I'm literally, they get physical with me. I'm like, come on, come hang out with us and eat with us. And those are some of the best times you'll have just hanging out and eating some great food and laughing at God knows what, you know, but heartily and sincerely. So yeah, just just say yes to as many experiences like that as you can. If you come out here, get, get out of the expat bubble as much as you can. People live up there in D2. And yo, no shade if you live in D2, but I didn't come all the way out here just to live around other expats. Like, stay your ass at home. I mean, no offense, but you know what I mean? Yep. Like, I don't, I want to, I came here because I want to live in Vietnam. You know what I mean? And, you know, I love my expat friends, obviously. Like, I've got, <laughs> I feel like somebody trying not to be racist. Some of my best friends are expats. There's nothing wrong with French people at all. You know, but, um, but yeah, just, just expand, expand your boundaries and you will expand your life. I think that's a, an amazing piece of advice to give to people thinking about living here, just embrace it. You really got to throw yourself in. Like we talked about, you got to ride the roller coaster. You're going to have your ups and downs. If it's tough, if you live here and it's tough, stick through it. It's going to get good. 
Uh, it is a crazy city. I still get my frustrations, but yeah, I think it's pretty awesome place to call home for for however long I'm here. So thank you so much, J.K. Hobson. You are the first ever guest on my podcast, Seven Million Bikes, a Saigon podcast. Uh, I hope if you're listening that you found that interesting. Uh, I hope there's something that you can take away from that. And I hope you can uh, tune in, listen to future episodes. We're going to talk to more and more people who live in Saigon, expats and uh, local people, and talk about similar kind of experiences, what their life is like, why they're here, and we'll get the same kind of uh, tips from the same questions at the end of each episode. So, thank you very much, JK. Thank thank you. Same, dude. Thanks for listening to the first ever episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Saigon podcast. Massive thank you to J.K. Hobson for joining me as my first ever guest. I found out a really interesting conversation. Lots of fun as well, so I hope you enjoyed it too. Big, big thank you to Lewis Wright for helping with the sound and also composing our theme song. Thank you as well to Leigh Wynn for designing the logo, which you can see on our website and Facebook page. I really hope you enjoyed this first episode and that you can tune in for more in the future. I'll be interviewing more Saigoneers, people who live in Saigon, expats and locals to find out more about their backgrounds and their stories and their thoughts on living in Saigon. In the meantime, please go to iTunes and leave a review. That'll be a massive help so more people can find 7 million bikes. And please share this with anyone else you think might enjoy it too on your social media. You can check us out on Facebook or on our website, 7millionbikes.com. And if you have any suggestions of someone from Saigon you'd like to hear interviewed, then you can send me a message on Facebook or just email me at 7millionbikes at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and I hope you have a great day. hope you enjoyed this episode if you're like me you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public wi-fi this opens you up to digital snoopers it's a massive problem it can be your internet service provider or you know who looking at what you do online or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data these days it is vital that you keep your data safe NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. 
As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers. <laughs>